0: So now, we'll have Tom come and give us the second part of his lesson.
1: Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, good morning. Good, morning. good morning. Well, let me, let me tell you, as, as a teacher, it is a whole lot more fun teaching a room full of people than it is six or eight. Um, the next couple of weeks I'm going to be teaching a smaller class and uh, I'd much rather teach you guys um, anyway life goes on um, I hope I can see my notes now
0: you want a flashlight?
1: okay um, I'm sure everybody enjoyed the party uh, and it just so happens that um, in today's lesson I'm going to talk about a horse and I want to be sure that all of you are awake when I get there. So this will be a challenge to you. I don't want you to cheer when I talk about this horse. Please don't do that. That would sort of interrupt the theme of things. But I will be talking about a horse today, and uh, it just so happened that that happened to be a part of my scripture, and um, God has a way of pulling things into focus for us. Okay. Last week I talked about, let's change the slide here, I won't do it. All right, we'll do it this way. I'll see the right. Okay. Last week we talked about um, God's plan. We talked about three prophets: Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And uh, we spent a good bit of time talking about Isaiah and how, when Jerusalem, the holy city of God was threatened to be destroyed by the Assyrians. You remember the Assyrians were surrounding the place. They had already destroyed all of the other parts of Judah. The northern kingdom was long since gone, some hundred years before then. Jerusalem was the only holdout, and Jerusalem was severely threatened. Isaiah prayed, and he talked to King Hezekiah, and promised King Hezekiah that God would not allow Jerusalem to be defeated, and it was not a very important step in God's plan. We talked a good bit about God's plan. And over and over again, last Sunday you heard me say, God's plan will not fail. I won't say that again this morning, so get ready for that. Hope that doesn't bore you too much. Okay, um, we know later that uh, uh, the Babylonians defeated Jerusalem. Um, they hauled some uh, uh, early uh, people, some young people, I should say, um, Daniel and Ezekiel off to Babylon in the first phase of the Babylonian exile. A few years later, they came in and moved everybody to Babylon. But the Babylonians were much more gentle than the Assyrians would have been. In Babylon, the Hebrew people were allowed to establish Hebrew, commu- Hebrew communities. They were able to worship as they pleased. And this determined, uh, developed into a very important phase in the history of the Hebrew nation. And it gave us the lead to the coming messiah that would happen about four hundred years later Um, a very important event Um, we talked about Ezekiel and his prophecies we talked about how Jeremiah predicted that the Babylonian exile would last for seventy years it did exactly we talked about um, Ezekiel Ezekiel talked about the valley of dry bones so we didn't mention that last Sunday but you're familiar with the story and the song that seems to go along with it Um, the dry bones was the people in Jerusalem that were left. Jerusalem was turned into a valley of dry bones. But Jesus Ezekiel said those dry bones are going to rise again. You remember the old Negro uh, spiritual. Um, and they did, of course, just as Ezekiel had predicted. Um, we, we saw God's hand in um, the history of the Hebrew people as they progressed through this period of exile and actually accomplished Uh, some real good things during that period. Um, And during the Babylonian exile, uh, the Old Testament was assembled, expanded, and almost finalized. Um, A few books, and we'll talk about them this morning, were added after that. But for the most part, the Old Testament that we have today was assembled and finalized during that period. Um, But a real important part of the Babylonian exile experience was that the Hebrews learned that they could worship God away from Jerusalem. They learned that God in their hearts, the Holy Spirit, as we would refer to it today, went with them into Babylon. This would be a very important step in the progress of God's plan as we uh, move through things and, of course, during the period uh, of the Messiah that would come later, talking about the Holy Spirit and the thing of, the, of God dwelling in our hearts rather than in a temple in Jerusalem. This would be a very important aspect of the early church, of course, because they developed into uh, developed synagogues into cities all over Asia and uh, and and even into Rome. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, and uh, idol worship uh, never was a problem again. Now Malone. I'm sure that you would disagree with that and point out that we do have a lot of idols that we worship today. But in terms of idols being statues, God-made images, and person-made images, man-made images, um, it never was a problem again. Okay, let's pick up now and see what happened after the Babylonian exile. Um, Babylonian exile ended in 539 B.C., when Persia, under Cyrus the Great, defeated the Babylonians. Now, just as the Babylonians were much more gentle than the Assyrians had been, the Persians were much more gentle than the Babylonians were. So, when Cyrus came in, he saw that the the Hebrew people were a captive nation there in Babylon, and he immediately allowed them to return to the Holy Land, return to the city of Jerusalem. And 50,000 Hebrews moved back into Jerusalem at that point in time. But a lot of them stayed in Babylon. Um, You remember the Babylonian exile had lasted 70 years. So we have had a couple of generations of Hebrews that were raised not in Jerusalem, not in the Holy Land, but actually in Babylon. So they had attachments there. They had established businesses and communities, friends and towns and places of worship. A lot of them stayed, and that would be important as we progress through time. Okay, um, I've got to get a drink of water. If you'll excuse me, some some Demo- some Republican candidate had a problem with a drink of water. I don't have any problem at all. You just reach down and pick it up and drink it don't know why Marco Rubio had such a problem with that, but it was a big time deal for him. Okay, when we talk about the uh, Babylonian exile, uh, we've we already mentioned the first item on my little list there, about the 50,000 uh, coming back, Ezra was among the first group that returned to Babylon. And Ezra's first uh, uh, task was to rebuild the temple, and he did that. Um, it was not quite as glorious as it was in the day of Solomon, but he rebuilt the temple. Unfortunately, the areas around the temple, the city parts, the place where the people dwelt, was not really rebuilt um, uh, for uh, uh, another uh, 70 years. And then Nehemiah, the one that we know so much more about than we do, um, Ezra, uh, came back in and he rebuilt the wall. Now, um uh, the interesting thing about Nehemiah is that he went to the king of Persia and got a great deal of support. Uh you, If you remember reading Nehemiah, and Roger can tell us more about it than I can, but Nehemiah had a lot of support from the king. He got letters uh, saying that uh, the Persian king had blessed his mission to go back to Jerusalem. He got materials, he got uh, people, I think he even had... Um, uh, representative from the army, the military, that went with him to protect him in this endeavor. So, uh, Nehemiah did great things, but uh, uh, he had a lot of help from the government. And if you look in the book that comes before Nehemiah, it's called Esther. Now, we don't look a whole lot at the book of Esther, but Esther was a Hebrew lady, a very um, beautiful woman, apparently, and she became king, a queen, of Persia. The king wanted her to be his wife and selected a Hebrew maiden to be his wife. And if you look at things carefully, it's very apparent that Esther had a great influence on the king of Persia. And when Nehemiah came to ask for all of the permission to go back to Jerusalem, Esther must have had a great deal of influence over the king to make all of that happen. So we can all, we can see God's plan in action. We can see God's plan in action with Ezra when he first came back. We can see the 50,000 Hebrews came back. But we can also see the hand of God in Esther and also in Nehemiah. God's plan in action. Okay, let's move on now. Um, I firmly believe that the sequence of events that really began with Isaiah and now going through Nehemiah and rebuilding the wall, all of the steps along the way were a part of God's plan. And we have said over and over again, God's plan will not fail. If it hadn't been for all of these things falling in place precisely, and really, when you think about the, uh, the saving of Jerusalem, all of these planned things took place against all odds. Somehow God made it happen. Okay. I get a great deal of assurance with that. Alright, let's look now at the next 400 years Um, our Bible is strangely silent about that period we really don't know a whole lot about what happened between the time of Nehemiah and the time of the coming of Christ it's described in Hebrew history elsewhere in all kinds of world history elsewhere but not in our Bible Um, we know that the Greeks came in between 331 and 167 B.C. and after that, we had a uh, hundred years of relative peace for the Hebrew people in Jerusalem. Um, at least they were independent for a period of a hundred years. There was some social unrest during that period, but um, uh, it was a period of relative peace. Uh, historians refer to it as the Maccabean period or the Hasmonean period. But then the Romans came in, and when the Romans came in, it was big-time persecution. Um And all of that unrest, especially after the uh, Romans came in, led to a lot of diaspora, is the term that the Hebrews used, where the Hebrews that had settled in the Holy Land began to spread out into all areas. They went as far south as Egypt. They went throughout Asia. They went as far west as Rome. A lot of them were already still living in Babylon, and they stayed there. So during that period... In the the few years just before the coming of Christ, the the, uh, the Hebrew people had spread throughout the area. The important part of that, of course, is that that set the stage for the early Christian church. Because in all of these communities all over that area, synagogues were established, and these were the synagogues that Paul, our first missionary, would go to visit. These became the nucleus of the early Christian church. God's plan in action? I believe it. Okay. Um last week, whoops, that's too many. <coughs> okay. <clears throat> last week I talked about Jim McCormick and his, uh, idea, his message to me that seemed so important to me personally, that God's Bible or our, the Bible is God's way of telling his story to us. He's revealing himself to us from cover to cover on our Bible. Now, I mentioned last week that um, we frequently look in Bible study at one little segment at a time. And it's difficult for me, at least, to relate it all together. But when you look at the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to revelation, and understand that, yes, it is God revealing himself to us, it sort of makes sense. And you look at the relationship of the events when you stand back, instead of looking at each one of them in detail. You'll see how it all falls in place, and one follows another. For the last couple of Sundays now, we have talked about prophets. We started with Isaiah. We've now gone through um, the um, the Babylonian exile, the period that followed it, right up to um, the time of coming of Christ. You can see how it all relates together. It is a sequence of events. That was fairly easy to follow. And then, of course, then we go into the New Testament, and because we're familiar with everything there I and mean, we, we study other Gospels, we study the Acts, we study the letters of Paul, and it all seems to relate. So all of that part seems to tie together pretty well because we're familiar with it. But then we come to the book of Revelation, and wow, we, we find that these things sound pretty way out, don't they? Um, and it's it's difficult to understand all of Revelation. But I'd like to leap forward now to the very last part of the book of Revelation. The writer of Revelation, uh, at that point in time, I think this is in Revelation 21, 22, something like that. He talked about a, a new Jerusalem. He talked about a vision that he had of a new heaven and a new earth. He saw a new Jerusalem coming down from the sky. Now, he refers to it as the holy city. We all refer to it as the holy city. But now let's think about the history of Jerusalem. And when we think about all of the events that took place in that holy city, we can go all the way from Revelation back to Genesis, believe it or not. Um, several uh, months ago, I was talking to this class. We talked about a mysterious character called Michelle Zedek. And I struggled with the pronunciation. And Jerry, I may still be pronouncing it wrong. But we'll we'll try our best to stay with it. Meshel um, Zedek is a mysterious character in the Old Testament. He shows up as Abraham was beginning his journey. Uh, this was before the great nation was formed, before uh, before Isaac and before um, Esau, and before any of those characters even were born. And um, the Bible tells us in Genesis 14 that Abraham had a meeting with the king of Jerusalem and the bible also says that he was a priest of the most high god he was there worshiping god in Jerusalem even before the time of abraham same city same jerusalem that we talked about in in um, in revelation the holy city that's coming down from uh from from heaven to see us michel zedek is mentioned again in in psalms 22 in Psalms 22, he is again referred to as the prince of the most high God. And we learn that the coming Messiah will be of the order of Michel Zedek. Okay, I, I think that something is pretty magical about the um, about the city of Jerusalem. And I'd like to talk a little bit about it. Let's review some of the events that have taken place in Jerusalem. First of all, Michelle Zedek was the king of Jerusalem, the priest of the most high God. Pretty amazing when you think about that happening in the Genesis 14, before Abraham began his journey. Solomon built his great temple there, and as we have discussed, God saved Jerusalem from the Assyrians. Christ died there. He rose from the dead there. In Psalms 110, we read that Christ will reign in Jerusalem. The Christian church started there, and in Revelation, we talk about a new Jerusalem. So it seems to me that our Bible is going full circle. We're now linking all the way back from Genesis to the very beginning and in Revelation at the very end. Um, I think that it's pretty amazing when you think about the things that have happened in this holy, holy city. And today we see that Jerusalem, again, is under peril. It is just... Amazing that it has survived through all of these centuries. Of course, we know that at times it was in totally in the hands of the Muslims. We know that today it is somewhat of a divided city. But we've got Iran. Interestingly interestingly enough, Persia is now Iran. And the guy over there is threatened to wipe the city out. Now, we saw a hand of God working before when Jerusalem was threatened by the Assyrians. Somehow, Isaiah prayed and it didn't happen, I think it's not going to happen again. I think that we can count on God through his majesty and a wonderful plan and great strength to bless the city of Jerusalem again. It will not fail. If it does fail, the Hebrew people will not be wiped out. That's God's plan. I firmly believe it. God will make it happen. Okay. Um, let's move now into... A few modern, no, 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 I don't want to leave that. Thank goodness God reminded me of this. (laughs) Um, In the book of Revelation, we talk about the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And um, in Psalms 110, we talk about God has sworn and will not change his mind. This is when David is thinking about the plan of God, God's plan. I, I say God's plan will not fail. David said it a little bit differently. He says God will not change his mind. God's plan will not fail. Okay. Alpha and Omega. These would have been interesting words to the Greek audience. This was the Greek alphabet of course. You remember um, we studied the book of uh, the Gospel of John and we said that John's Gospel was written specifically to a Greek audience because that's what the early church was in a lot of cases. Well, um, it could have been the same John that wrote Revelation. We, all, we know that the guy that wrote Revelation's name was John, but we're not really sure that it was the same person, and I'm not here to debate that point. But also, he was talking about a Greek audience, and he referred to God being the Alpha and the Omega, Almighty God, henceforth and forevermore. God was, God is, and God will be forevermore the Alpha and the Omega. That would have meant tremendous things to the Greek people because they identified very clearly Alpha and Omega being the beginning and the end. And I think, too, that it all ties it together. We think about the Genesis being the Alpha, Revelation being the Omega. This is the full circle that I'm talking about. Okay, Um Let's move now into more recent history. We've talked about all of these miraculous things that God has done to make his plan happen as described in the Bible. He's not through. Let's look at things that have happened since the Bible now and see if we can find evidence of God's plan in action. And again, defense of my thesis that God's plan will not fail. Um, I put a few of them up here on this chart. Uh, I'm sure that people in this class can... Uh, throw in any number of more examples of God's plan and action and God's God not allowing his plan to fail. Look at the early church. It is a pure miracle that our church started with 11 pretty uneducated men and expanded as rapidly as it did in spite of all kinds of persecution and uh, challenges, heresies, Everything else that was thrown at the early church in that first few years that when it was first getting started, God's plan and action. all right, we're going to more recent history. We look at the Catholic Church. Now, some of you here, I'm sure were both members of the Catholic Church, but you'll have to agree with me that the Catholic Church got pretty corrupt um, uh, during the years before Martin <coughs> Luther. Martin Luther came along and corrected a lot of that. And since then, the Catholic Church has corrected many, many more of these deficiencies. They were pretty corrupt at a time, but God would not allow it to fail. He stepped in and did the things that had to be corrected. And I think that we can see further defense of the fact that God will not let his plan fail. All right. Nazi Germany tried their best to wipe out all the Hebrews. Every Jew. They wanted annihilation. wipe them out forever. Lots of luck, folks. They killed five million or so. A terrible tragedy. But still, the Hebrew nation survived, came back, rebuilt itself, and settled in what now is, is is Israel. All right. So we have seen that through all history, I hope that you can follow with me and agree with me, that God will not let his plan fail. But now, we get into today's world, and we see... Um, challenges all over the place, especially the the, the rise of radical move, movements, terrorism, people that want to um, force us to accept their way of life and their beliefs. In our own nation, we see moral decay. We see what used to be dependent upon the Lord moving toward a dependency on the government. We're challenged in a lot of different ways. Um God did not going to let it fail. It may be difficult for those who have to live through it, like you and me. But in the long run, God's plan will not fail. We talked about prophets. I talked about Isaiah. I talked about Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Of course, there are many more in the Bible. But I think we've got some current day prophets as well. And um, you may not disagree, may not agree with me on this. I am aware that... Uh, um, We've got political views in this class that are different from my own, uh, and I'm sort of treading on thin ice as I go through the rest of this presentation, but if you would, if you would bear with me, um, I would appreciate it. Um, while you may not agree exactly with my political views, I think that you will support me in your trust in God. So, let's move, in, move forward and look, look at a couple of modern-day prophets. Um, you've got more that you would like to add to the list, but I want to talk about two of them. Okay. Blew right by that one. All right. Top of my list. Billy Graham. Um, Billy Graham's been around for a long time. Currently, he's in poor health, um, but he has done tremendous things in the last 50 years through his crusades. Hundreds of thousands of people have come to trust in the Lord through the work of Billy Graham, a modern-day prophet, if ever there was one. Um Billy Graham's headquarters is in Charlotte, um, and it just happens to be um, a few blocks away from the convention hall where the Democratic convention was held uh, back last fall. I think I subscribe to Billy Graham's little magazine called the Decision Magazine. And in the October issue, Billy Graham says that he was appalled, couldn't believe Absolutely astonished at the part of the Democratic Convention when the mayor of Los Angeles stood up and removed all reference to God and Jerusalem from the Hebrew, from the Democratic platform. Um, you remember it well. We've seen it over and over again, and Billy Graham has seen it over and over again. It took three votes, three voice votes, and even with the third one, there was a lot of doubt, in my mind certainly, about whether the uh, the proposal carried, but somehow the mayor decided that yes, it had passed. Um, Billy Graham couldn't believe that, and he really expressed that very strongly in the October issue of his decision magazine. Billy Graham feels like that we have gone too far and are getting away from our roots. He's strongly opposed to to gay marriage. He's strongly opposed to abortion. And he's speaking out very strongly against both of those issues. He feels like we need to return to trust in God rather than depending on our our government. Um, and again, he was appalled at what the Democrats done did. Um, the thing that bothers me the most about this, I guess, is that this was a proposition that was introduced without debate, um, without really anybody having an opportunity to stand up and speak against it. It was sort of forced upon the Democrats. And that bothers me a lot, because when we have a government that is making decisions on its own and forcing those positions upon the people, we're in trouble, folks. Okay, um, enough said. I hope I didn't hurt anybody's feelings with that. Um, my next modern-day prophet may be uh, a little bit more political, and you may not agree with this at all. But I believe <coughs> that Dr. Jim Carson... Whoops, didn't need to do that. Now, what did I do? Go back and slides No. Oh. all right. I don't need this interruption. All right. Problem is I can't see what I'm doing here. We'll tell you when to stop. Oh, I appreciate that. It okay. It All right, we got it. I, I I want to put Dr. Ben Collins on our on Carson. my list. Carson. Carson.
0: Carson. Uh, if we're talking about the same person,
1: we are talking about the same person. How did I come out with Collins?
0: Spell
1: <laughs> All right. I like to be perfect. That's a <laughs> <I understand. laughs> Dr. Ben Carson. Um, Most of you know his history. Um, Raised in the ghettos of Detroit. Um, A history of of poverty like you wouldn't believe. Um, Raised by a single parent, a single mom, with a very strong faith. (coughs) And she taught Ben Carson and his brother, Curtis, um, to believe in God from the very get-go. And that faith stayed with him all his life. And somehow he escaped from those conditions of poverty to become a very renowned neuro, neurosurgeon um, at John Hopkins um, uh, Hospital in New York or in Baltimore. Um, ben Collins, uh, Ben Carson. Gee, ben, ben Carson feels like we have got to get back to our roots. We've got to get away from our dependency on big government programs and on technology to our faith in God and put our trust in the Lord. He's very concerned about education. He says that political correctness is really limiting our ability to speak out for ourselves and to really stand up for our trust in the Lord. Um, He's very concerned that our kids today in public schools are being taught that there is something evil about going to church, or identifying yourself with God. He thinks that we have somehow got to get back to our roots, and especially get around this idea of political correctness. Um, both of these men want us to refer return to God. I think that they are both modern day prophets. Um, it's interesting to me, and I had already uh, talked about, I plan to talk about Dr. Ben Carson, Um, This is one I had to pray about, honestly, because uh, I really feel like that I'm in the danger of using the opportunity to speak to you today to express my political opinions. Um, uh, But I I feel compelled to do that. Um, Ben Carson's, I had already made a decision to have this part in the program before I got the the May issue of Billy Graham's magazine. But I picked it up. Whose picture is on the front? Ben Carson. (laughs) Billy Graham picked up on the same things that I did. He wants to consider Ben Carson as a modern-day prophet. Um, Dr. Carson has written a book. It's called America the Beautiful, but he doesn't stop there. He's got a little subtitle that says, Rediscovering What Made This Nation Great. And that's a bigger theme of this book. I recommend this thing to everybody. This guy knows what he's talking about. He is a very, very serious current-day prophet. Okay, about out of time. I am out of time. I want to wrap things up with um, reading a scripture written by David, three thousand years ago at least, maybe more than that. But it's so relevant to us today that it's uh, you could almost think that Billy Graham was saying these same words, uh, phrasing them a little bit differently, of course. But the message is still there. If you're reading the chronological Bible, you read this. Psalm on May the 1st. So here goes. This is going to be my closing prayer. Another Marco Rubio moment here. (laughs) You'll be on TV
0: tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt
1: that. Okay, here we go. By the word of the Lord were made the heavens, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea into jars and he put the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He twarts the purpose of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance." From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on the earth. He who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Amen.
0: And you had a lot to do and a lot of things to go, so one little name is not a big problem. I have a very little thing to here to do, and boy, did I make a mistake this morning. I'll probably never be invited back to somebody's house again, because we have an anniversary coming up this week that I failed to <coughs> mention a while ago. Gail and George are having their anniversary this week, and George... We had, you had big celebration last night at your house, but I don't think that's going to get you by on this. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, y'all remember that. Our scripture this week <clears throat> is Proverbs twenty-five, fifteen. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue can break bones. <clears throat> Apparently, <clears throat> excuse me, the Lord here says that the softest part of the body is able to break the hardest part. That is a very beautiful expression of the power of the words of a child of God. When the child of God speaks in gentleness and patience, when the child of God speaks as in the presence of God, the power of those words to correct and to break the hardness and sinful anger which can so often overwhelm our hearts. Instead, our words adding to the flames. Christ says that a wise tongue, a tongue that comes from him, is able to break the bones. So everybody have a good week, and we'll see you next week.